Hi, my name is Lou Eisen, and welcome to Ring Talk, boxing writer and historian. And today we have a very special guest. We're just waiting for him to click on the link in his in his uh, uh, home in Indiana. He's the very distinguished professor, Randy Roberts. He's the 150th anniversary history professor at Purdue University. He's four times nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. He's written 30 books. He's written some unbelievably brilliant books. Uh, such as Joe Lewis, one of my favorites, Hard Times Man, Jack Dempsey and the Manasseh Mahler. He's written also on Jack Johnson, and uh, he's got a new one, Season in the Sun, Mickey Mantle, which I can't wait to get. He's written on John Wayne, the Chicago Cubs, and hopefully he will be joining us soon. You will recognize him instantly from his appearances on the documentary, the PBS documentary, Unforgivable Blackness. And just a brilliant man, and it would indeed be a tremendous privilege to have him on today if we are able to get him. Um, the book we're going to talk about today that he wrote is an interesting book, Blood Brothers. And this book, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And I'll ask our producer, Eric, just to stop or interrupt me whenever uh, Randy signs on. So... Uh, I had a bunch of questions for him that I can try to answer myself. And I guess when Randy comes on, we can compare them. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask Mr. Roberts, Professor Roberts, is what did each man get from the other? What did Ali get from Malcolm X and Malcolm X get from Ali that they didn't get from anyone else? And I think it's an interesting question because there's a certain spark going on between these two when they met. What I found uh, unusual about part of their friendship was they, they came from two totally divergent backgrounds. Ali was part of the black middle class in Kentucky. He actually, you know, had a nuclear family. His parents lived with him at home, brother Rudy, and they had a house and his father had a job. His mother had a job. They had indoor plumbing. They had a kitchen. So they had their own room. So it was really, you know, a different, a different upbringing than Malcolm, who grew up poor in the South, whose father was murdered by the Klan, and who was told how ignorant and stupid he was every day by a white teacher. So it's interesting that two people from different backgrounds uh, found each other. But when they did find each other, it, it, it just it clicked. It was like lightning and thunder, because what Muhammad Ali got was he got this firm background for Malcolm on the history of, of what went on with black people in the United States and around the world. And he found out certain truths. For instance, you know, Jesus Christ was black with hair like lamb's wool, born in the Middle East, was not this European white blue-eyed vision. And that he believed that that wasn't the um, Christianity wasn't the white man's or wasn't the black man's to relation that, that it was Islam, but everyone in that part of the world at that point in, in, in Middle East Africa was black. So what Malcolm got was he got this tremendous uh, boost for the nation of Islam from Muhammad Ali, this electric character who, you know, they, they both used each other in a way. Ali was able to shoot to fame, but he gained a lot more confidence with Malcolm that, that, um, you know, he, he didn't want to 
Muhammad wasn't alone, let's put it that way, that he had Malcolm behind him, get, pumping him with all this confidence. And, and Ali was a great spokesman for the Nation of Islam. He made them internationally famous. He brought in million, hundreds of millions of dollars in donations because this was Ali, you know, this, or before he was Ali, it was um, Cassius Clay. So it was an important, it was a very important um, uh, relationship between the two men. Uh, the book brings that out. What I wanted to ask uh, Professor Roberts was what, what drew them to each other and why was their bond so tight, especially since they came from the two backgrounds. Um, they were like brothers. They truly loved each other and they were very close. And, you know, when, when Malcolm made, I don't want to say it was a mistake, but it cost him his life. Uh, Malcolm made the decision to release several truths. And one of the truths was that Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the Nation of Islam, the lost found Nation of Islam, as it was called, was uh, fathering a lot of children. He was a flanderer with white secretaries that worked in various mosques all over the United States. And this was a bombshell. And this is essentially what marked Malcolm for death. Malcolm was speaking out and speaking his mind, and you weren't supposed to do that. Everything came from Elijah Muhammad. In fact, it started to fall apart after the assassination, November 22nd, 1963, of President Kennedy, when um, Malcolm was asked about it, and he said he wasn't upset. He said, I'm always happy when chickens come home to roost. And after the assassination, Elijah Muhammad had put out uh, an order to every member of the nation of Islam, do not make any negative comments at all in any way about President Kennedy. He was dearly loved and this would bring us bad publicity and you know this would put a, paint us in a bad light and Malcolm didn't listen and so he was suspended from the Nation of Islam. But at that time, this is before, this is November 63. Remember Ali wins the title February 64. So Ali's still very close with him and this presents Elijah Muhammad with a conundrum which is you know, I got to get rid of Malcolm. Malcolm's eloquent. Elijah Muhammad wasn't a good speaker. He was boring. He was dull. And he wasn't a person that, that excuse me, he wasn't a magnetic speaker the way Malcolm X was. We've all seen clips of Malcolm X. It could hold you in the palm of his hand. The same with Muhammad Ali. It could hold you in the palm of his hand. Malcolm X was a boring, monotonous speaker. And... Oh, excuse me, Elijah Muhammad was a boring, monotonous speaker. And Malcolm X was a direct threat to his, to his supremacy. And this is one of the things I wanted to get at with, with uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, Professor Roberts, is was, you know, Malcolm viewed as a direct threat to him? Was Malcolm looked upon? I'm just checking my email to see if I've had a response from him. Was Malcolm reviewed or looked at as a direct threat to, to the nation of Islam and to the leadership of Elijah Muhammad? And if so, and it was decided that they had to get rid of him, who ordered it? Who ordered the hit? But on today's show, what we really wanted to discuss was the relationship between them because they, they were inseparable, Muhammad and, and Malcolm X. And you would see them everywhere. Uh, the Nation of Islam was this 
fringe religious sect. And in fact, recently in Toronto, at a Benabrith dinner, anti-defamation league dinner, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who is Muslim, was there. And he said that the Nation of Islam are not Muslims. They've never been Muslims. He said they're hate mongers, they're bigger bigots, and they're ignorant. And he said that's the way Elijah Muhammad was. And he said, and that's the way Louis Farrakhan is. And I know for a fact Ali was not particularly particularly um, uh, didn't particularly like Louis Farrakhan and, and his his harsh rhetoric and views towards particularly Jewish people. So, so you have this going on. The Nation of Islam was founded in, in the 20s by a white man named W.D. Fard, and it was actually bankrolled financially by a Jewish businessman. When Elijah Muhammad, his real name was Elijah Poole, joined, he joined to, the, you know, he, he, he saw as a great idea, he joined, W.D. Fard disappeared, most people believe was murdered by Elijah Muhammad, and then W. Uh, Elijah Muhammad didn't enter World War II. He said, "It's not my my war, the white people's war. It's not my job to save the Jews, nor do I want to." So he went to prison for that, and he and prison really, you know, made him a much harder, tougher man, as it would to anyone. And he came out of prison and. Uh, he, he starts, I guess, in Detroit and then moves around to Chicago and other places, the Nation of Islam. And these are people you would see, how do I describe this? I know in Toronto and in every city, I guess in North America, there's always someone on a major street corner with a bullhorn and a soapbox, come to Jesus, the end is near. Well, this is what they were viewed as, these kind of people, uh, uh, wing nuts, you know, always asking, other black people to join, and many black people saw them as just a cult. And the way they got Malcolm X, not that they got him, but they got him to join. Malcolm X, before we knew him as this eloquent orator for the Nation of Islam, was a street hustler. And, and, um, he was street hustling with Red Fox, the comedian, believe it or not. And so he was on this Detroit Red. Red Fox also had Red Hair. So they were they were hustling over Detroit. He was selling drugs. He worked in New York selling drugs. He was a pimp. And um, just a hardcore criminal. Until he, and he was also a heroin addict. And he got caught, got put in prison. And... When he got put in prison, he had to come down from his heroin habit, and he was having a tough time. And the Nation of Islam approached him, and they helped him. Like I don't know if they gave him methadone or whatever they gave him, two, three, four, five times to get over the worst point. And then finally, when he was able to, uh, they started to talk to him in prison, the members of the Nation of Islam, and tell him about his race and his his real what they believe to be his real religion and his history. And Malcolm understood, was thankful for it. He believed it saved his life. And of course, when he gets paroled, he becomes a minister and he meets Elijah Muhammad and starts preaching. And Ali, Muhammad Ali, first as Cassius Clay with his brother Rudy, got interested in the Nation of Islam when they were attending a conference in uh, 
Detroit. I'm not sure where, if that was the actual spark or the meeting point. This is what I wanted to ask Dr. Roberts about. And so what happens is Ali likes what he hears at this conference in Detroit with his brother. And it appeals to him because, you know, Ali grew up in this world. I mean, he lived in the South. Now, Kentucky didn't join the Confederate States during the Civil War. You know, they stayed with the Union. But Ali still experienced it, even though he went to a, uh, you know, um, a mixed race high school. And Ali went to the Olympics, he wins the gold medal, and he's promoting the USA, he's known as the mayor of the Olympic Village. And then he comes back, and when he comes back, he creates a story, which is completely fiction. By the way, the book, The Greatest, by Richard Durham with Muhammad Ali, Richard Durham was the staff writer for the Nation of Islam. Almost nothing in that book is true. It's complete fiction. And so in the book, they say that Muhammad went into a hamburger joint and the lady said, we don't serve Negroes. And Muhammad said, well, I don't eat them. I want a hamburger. And they wouldn't serve him. And he was so upset. He goes outside and he throws his, his um, gold medal into the river. And it never happened. He never did that. And when I spoke to Angelo Dundee and to Muhammad, he just lost it. As we all do, we lose things. Muhammad, especially as he got older, never put much value on things of material work. So if he had a briefcase and you said, hey, that's a cool looking briefcase, he'd give it to you. Or if you liked his watch or like the tie you have on, it's a cool, colorful tie, he'd give it to you. It didn't mean anything to him. If it made you happy, fine, you have it. So it didn't mean anything. I mean, it did at the time. And he used his story to perpetrate the racism. And, I, and I'm sure he experienced that throughout. But Muhammad wasn't stupid. I mean, he knew in Louisville what restaurants he could and couldn't go into. Perhaps he did think that because he was an Olympic champion, this indemnified him from racism. But it didn't. So what we have there, um, you know, they, these guys first meet. But they come of age when Ali goes to New York. This is when their relationship takes off. And I think Elijah Muhammad was of this. I mean, the relationship, there were rumors for a long time that, you know, Olympic boxer Cassius Clay flirting with the nation of Islam. You have to understand this is during the civil rights movement, the, the beginning, the very beginning of the anti-Vietnam War movement and also the youth movement that started at colleges like Berkeley, and USC and went all across the nation where, where there was a changing of the guard. We're out with the old guard, in with the new guard. And you know, I always felt the saddest and most profound victim of all of this was Sonny Liston. I mean, Liston was part of the old guard, but he had no choice. Liston couldn't read or write, he was illiterate. And Liston wouldn't challenge what was going on in the South. Ali did, but Liston wouldn't because Liston grew up in the deep South knowing that if you challenged it, you got lynched. And, you know, Liston was the 28th of 29 children born to Tobe Liston. And when they asked Liston after he beat Patterson for the title, they said, are you going to march with the Freedom Riders in Selma uh, protesting segregation? And he said, no. And they asked him why. He said, because I ain't got no dog-proof ass. He thought, it's stupid to protest these people in the South. 
because the police and the people are just going to murder you and they're going to get away with it, which happened quite often. So one of the seminal points in Muhammad Ali's life happened in 55, 57, I think, with the murder of young Emmett Till. Uh, basically, Emmett Till is this young kid from Chicago who goes down there to visit with relatives, goes into a store, orders some gum, gets some gum. But the lady was upset and ran it, the bigot who admitted before she died that he was standing outside talking and laughing with his friends. She had no friends. Her husband and her, her brother-in-law, I mean, were just, I don't know if they were Klansmen, but they were sure not far from it. And she made up a story about he grabbed her and whistled at her and wanted to have make love to her. That never happened. And of course they ended up murdering Emmett Till and Muhammad Ali in Louisville seized the picture of, of Till and his casket of his face grotesquely swollen and you, I mean, you couldn't recognize him after what they had done to him. So this really terrified as it would any young African-American back then. And, he, you know, Muhammad thought there's something not right about the religion I'm being taught in school. There's something, there has to be something better to protect black people because white people aren't going to do it and white police aren't going to do it. So alleys of this mind and he realizes that although when he's in rome he wins the olympic gold light heavyweight gold medal he's got no rights when he comes back to louisville and what he did was he got these sponsors behind him the louisville sponsoring group i think 12 13 white men all millionaires put money in and he becomes more militant as he sees more things happening the shooting of Edgar evers uh civil rights leader in the south and he just doesn't believe and can't accept the way black people are being treated, but he's not sure how to speak out about it. At this point, Ali's focused solely on his career. So when he gets to New York, and he was in New York, um, actually, he was in New York and he wanted to meet Sugar Ray Robinson, who ignored him, waited all day in winter to meet him. And, but he sees people preaching and he takes one of the Muhammad Speaks newspapers and these newspapers are telling them you know muhammad is is um elijah muhammad speaks and message to the black man and it's he starts reading it and he's reading things that are making sense to him you know why are we portrayed as this why are we second class citizens why you know lincoln emancipated black people why can't we're supposed to have election rights all over the country we don't have those. We're supposed to be able to go into any store or restaurant. We can't do that. We're supposed to be able to speak our mind publicly without fear of retribution. We can't do that. And Ali, you know, young Cassius Clay's reading this and he's thinking, this is true. This makes sense to me. I want to hear more of this. And so he starts to go to more and more meetings and 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 they hook up. And they're seen together. And this breaks out into the newspaper. Now, the fight with Liston, uh, February 25th, 1964, at the Miami Beach Convention Center, is promoted by Chris Dundee, Angelo's brother, and Bill McDonald. But it breaks in the newspaper a couple weeks before, maybe, I think, a week before or less, excuse me, that Ali is a member of the Nation of Islam. And in fact, Jimmy Dundee, Angelo's son, said he had joined six to eight months before that fight. So he had joined even before President Kennedy was assassinated. 
And I said, how do you know that? And he said, because I was playing hide and seek with them in my backyard in Florida. And um, I, I said, ready or not, Cassius, here I come. And Cassius said over the walkie-talkie, my name's not Cassius anymore, Jim, you know that. My name's Muhammad Ali. And so this brouhaha breaks up, this big storm, it's in the papers. And as Chris Dundee said, now I got a problem. Before I have the great Olympic hero that everyone loves, he's gorgeous, he's charismatic, he, he, he's, he's got a great smile. And then I have the villain Liston who worked for the mafia, who was a head breaker, who hurt people, who was a money collector for the mob. And now, because he's a member of the Nation of Islam, which is viewed as a racist sect, which it quite was in many respects, I got two villains. And so Bill McDonald, the, the money man behind the fight, Bill McDonald comes in and Bill McDonald um, calls Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay and says, listen, um, you have, uh, you've got to drop this. You've got to go out publicly in the newspapers and give a TV interview and say, I'm not a member of the Nation of Islam. I don't support the Nation of Islam. They're racist. They don't represent my point of view. And if you don't do that, then the fight's canceled. And, you know, Muhammad's just 22 years old. He's just a kid. I'm 62. That's 40 years younger than I am now. I didn't know what I was doing back then. And... He looked at him, he said, then cancel it. I'm not going to give up on my religious beliefs or my morality just to make you money. And this was a case in point. It's, it, the incredible thing here is the fact that the Nation of Islam even supported Ali because they were against professional sports. But in particular, boxing, because they view boxing as a sport where black men beat each other up uh, for the pleasure of white people and to make white people money specifically the mafia and the mafia had ripped off all fighters but in particular black fighters stolen all their money in every fight for you know 70 60 70 years so these were vile vicious people and so ali said no then the fight's off and all ali really wanted to do from the time he was 12 on was be the heavyweight champion of the world you know when he was a kid his heroes were joe lewis and sugar ray robinson so what happens? So he goes to his bus, which he calls Big Red, and he's getting ready, he's gonna leave. And as he walks out, you know, he's leaving, and then half an hour later, Chris and Angelo Dundee come in, and Bill McDonald tells him what's happened. He said, why would you do that? Why would you threaten him? What did you think he was gonna do? You know, do you think he would just give in to you? You know how he is, he doesn't give in to anyone. And this is part of how Muhammad trained you know, Angela would never tell him what to do because he couldn't. He would suggest it. He would say, I love the way you're popping that jab or throwing that right hand. And then, you know, Muhammad would keep doing it. So Chris Dundee saves today. He says, you know, give me an hour. They run out. And Ali's in his bus. He's getting ready to go back to Kentucky. He's given up. Not, not given up like depressed, given up, but like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go back to my religious beliefs. He said to McDonald, you're a Christian. If somebody said, we can't broadcast a fight unless you go back on your Christian beliefs, would you do it? And obviously he wouldn't do it. So what happens is Chris Dundee talks to him and he says, listen, the fight's tonight, right? 
and Clay said, they're not going to be a fight now. And, and, and Chris said, why don't we do this? And, and Cassius Clay says, I'm not going back. I understand that. I'm not denouncing Elijah Muhammad. I'm not denouncing the nation of Islam. I refuse to do that. And Chris said, I'm not asking you to. I'll take care of Bill McDonald. He said, all you have to do is wait. How long? 24 hours. That's all. He said, once you beat Liston and the titles around your waist, it's a fait accompli. It's nothing they can do about it. So you beat him tonight. Tomorrow you come out, make your announcement. It's too bad for them. You got everything. And Ali waited two days, actually, to make the announcement. You know, he wins on the Friday, and then on the on the Sunday, he makes the announcement that my new name is Muhammad Ali. But in fact, he's been using that name for six to eight months now. And he, he you know, Ali was just so magnetic, and it upset people. I mean, people don't realize today how much of a villain Ali was. He was universally hated. He was a king in his own realm because... People thought, well, you know, parents were Baptists. I mean, this is great. We got it away from Liston. And now he's turned around and he's done this. And, of course, Ali came out with a statement, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I'm free to be who I am. I, you know, my color skin, not yours. My religion, not yours. My words, not yours. It's my life and it's not your life. And I can act however I want according to the laws of the United States and the tenets of my religion. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so this upset people. This is a big firestorm. And to make it even worse, he's got Malcolm X with him. And there's that movie that was done by Regina King, One Night in Miami. Most of it was uh, fiction. I'm going to see if Mr. Roberts got back to me because I noticed that I have a new... Uh, email, but most of it, most of it was fiction, and I mean, Malcolm X was in with him. So was so was um, Sam Cooke and those people, and and other people. But they never met in a hotel room. After they met in a Muslim bar, Ali didn't. It showed Ali in the movie drinking alcohol. Ali never touched alcohol, and this was. Um, something that you know was was uh, misplayed in the movie so they're all celebrating that night and before the fight malcolm x was asked i think by angelo dundee to leave during training camp he said you're bringing a lot of heat he'd been in with ali in training at that point for a couple of years jimmy dundee has photos of him with him jimmy was a young boy then and Malcolm sitting at the lunch counter down below having something to eat. You know, Florida was a southern city, right? So it, it, there was still a lot of racism then. And, and Malcolm was there every day at the gym, yelling encouragement to Muhammad, giving him spiritual guidance, grooming him as a member of the Nation of Islam. But the more reporters started to write about it, you know, ticket sales stopped. And people started to return tickets. So because of that, and also they returned tickets, which, other, which some people don't mention, is the fact that it was thought to be such a, a mismatch. You know, Liston was a minimum 7-1 to one favorite, but in a lot of places, he was 10 or 15-1. to one. Ali was viewed as um, a, uh, an amusing flake. He wasn't supposed to have a chance. No one thought he had a chance. There was something like 99 sports writers at ringside 
96 picked Liston within two rounds. Three of them, two from New York, one from Britain, said Ali has a chance because Liston's only fought three rounds in the last three years, which was true. He had three fights, each one lasting less than a round. So because of that, they thought the long, and Liston, everyone knew, hadn't trained because he thought it'd be a cakewalk. You know, he's going to hit out Ali or Clay and then the fight will be over. And, but Clay was training. And in his ear, every day, X, and Malcolm X was telling him, you got this. You have this. Allah would not allow you to lose. This isn't happening by chance. You understand this? This isn't because you dreamed as a boy at 12, I want to be the heavyweight champion. All of that, going into boxing, winning the Olympic gold medal, that was preordained by God, by Allah. And this is part of Allah's plan to allow you to show the world the greatness of Allah and, and the religion of Islam. And so what he did, he was there pumping him up. He was giving him confidence. And right after the fight, when he wins, he said, I talk to God every day. If God's behind me, can't nobody beat me. And, and that's how he felt. He really believed in his heart that not only the nation of Islam, and especially Malcolm, his best friend, was behind him, but Allah himself was behind him. He thought, how can I lose? I can't be beat. And he goes into this fight. And uh, so Malcolm leaves a week or two before the fight and comes back for the day of the fight because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He wants to focus to be on Muhammad. And it's funny, when they interview Malcolm X after the fight, he said, were you surprised? No. He was confident, better fighter, younger man, smarter. Allah ordained it. What do you think, what do you think uh, Cassius Clay, how he feels now? And he had a great comment. He said, uh, Mr. Clay, as we all know, can very well speak for himself better than I can or anyone can, and you'd be best to pose those questions to him rather than me. And, you know, he's talking. One of the things that came up before the fight that I wanted to ask Professor Roberts was, um, there's rumors, uh, they pertain to the second fight, but to this fight too, that the Nation of Islam came to to, to Liston's training camp, the, the foy, the fruit of Islam, and threatened him. And because they threatened him, Liston didn't come out for the seventh round. I don't buy it. I don't think that's even within the realm of possibility. Liston was a mob guy. He was controlled by the mafia. You know, he, he was backed by the Lucchese family in New York and the most powerful of all mafia families, the outfit in Chicago. Being backed by the mafia meant he had no fear of anyone. They could easily put someone else out there to get rid of anyone they wanted, you know, to protect Liston. I think, although we're getting away from this unique relationship between Malcolm and Muhammad, I think basically that I don't think it was Liston's shoulder, though he said it was his shoulder because the round before they stopped the fight, before Liston quits in his corner, first world heavyweight champion to do that since Jess Willard is using the left hand. I think. Liston said, I'm exhausted. I've got nothing left. I can't fight. He's beating the hell out of me, and he's going to knock me out. I don't want to be knocked out. I don't want to go out like that. I want to preserve my manhood. So if he wants it, let him take it. And Liston just quit. And that's what bullies do. Bullies quit. It's a function of all bullies.
Um, the, one of the other questions um, uh, that I wanted to, to, oh, hi, Scrapbook, glad you're here. We're still waiting for Mr. Randy Roberts. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't look like he's going to be here, but um, uh, um, hopefully he'll, uh, he'll show up soon. Um, I wanted to ask him if the, did, if the FBI, uh, uh, which I think they did, infiltrated the Nation of Islam because they saw them as a threat. Of course, J. Edgar Hoover saw any black person as a threat. But the comments being made by Elijah Muhammad, excuse me, and other members of the Nation of Islam, specifically, oh, that's Randy, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. Hello. Yes, it is. Hi, how you doing? Yes. Great to hear your voice. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're gonna we were gonna start at two, but we can start now if you like. Yes, yes, sir. Okay. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. So he's going to be on. Randy's going to be on. So he, he um, he's extremely busy. He, he, you've seen him on many Ken Burns specials. So Eric, what do we do now? Scrap it. This is going to be great. You're going to love this. Um, Eric, what should we do now? We're 33 minutes in. We'll just start anew with Randy. We will wait for him. Oh, oh, okay. So I'll just, okay. Well, what I'll do is I'll introduce him. I'll do it like it's the top of the show, and um, um, we'll do it that way when Randy comes on. And um, uh, I would just like the part that's going to be aired to be the part with Randy, but we maybe can do it in two different parts because it. I would just love to, um, okay, great. So he's going to let me know when he's in the green room. And um, uh, okay, so what I should do is then I should, um, uh, I should get the, why am I stuttering? I should get the history of him and, and I have that in my head. Uh, fortunately, I have such a big head. Uh, for you people watching out there in Scrapbook, just want to say this would be great. Uh, he is an incredible man. He's very, very uh, busy, Professor Roberts. Uh, you've seen him on literally dozens of Ken Burns documentaries and um, the Muhammad Ali one recently on PBS, on the Jack Johnson one, Unforgivable Blackness. Um, his most recent book is about... Um, a season in the Sun, Mickey Mantle, and right now he's just changing his shirt. Um, you know, I, I'll say this: it's a good thing I was a stand-up comedian for many years because they would have to introduce a famous comic, and they would say he's not here yet. He'll be here in 20 minutes. And then think, uh-oh. Well, they don't want to listen to me. They want to listen, you know, to to, to the comic. But um, 
Well, I'll try Scrapbook to get his Jack Johnson stuff. Mostly what we're going to talk about is the Blood Brothers book. And as I'm looking down at the page, um, you know, you can see I, I'm looking down a bit because I have a list of like 35 questions to uh, to get here to him. And I guess I can ask him because he would give he wrote the book and he would give um he he was privy to information um that um that other people weren't so in the book on jack johnson joe lewis hard times man which i love you're right last bell boxing yeah hard times man is a magnificent book and last bell boxing have to agree that's also one of the greatest titles i've ever heard for a book Hard Times Man. So he's a premier historian, and you'll recognize him instantly when you see him. And I just really enjoyed watching him on, on Unforgivable Blackness, also on Ken Burns' documentaries. And um, so his knowledge of boxing is great, and he put it in a way that most people understand. You know, when I when I went to school, History was a thing people dreaded, but I loved. And he makes it exciting, and he makes it fun, and he's constantly in demand. So um, uh, hopefully he's just changing. And he's at home in Indiana, Lafayette, Indiana. I'd love to go to Indiana, but I've never been there. Um, so hopefully uh, just be on air soon. This is what is known as vamping. Um, I am ashamed to admit that I did watch the Logan Paul fight, uh, not Logan Paul, Jake, Jake Paul fight, which last night, which put me to sleep. And the Serrano fight was all right, but Heather Hardy's shot, and that was just a beat down. So um, uh, in Unforgivable Blackness about Jack Johnson, the stuff that Randy Roberts, these were great stories that are in his book about Johnson. And Jack Johnson was very much a big influence on Muhammad Ali. You know, uh, Ali, when Ali would be fighting and people would be yelling derogatory things at him, sorry, um, Drew Bundini Brown would be yelling, ghost in the house, meaning Jack Johnson's here. And that would always spur Ali on, you know, to fight even harder. And um, so, you know, I, I don't know of a more prolific figure than Muhammad Ali in boxing, you know, in the history of the sport. I certainly think, as most people know, Jack, Joe Lewis was the greatest of all heavyweight champions, but Ali was the most magnetic and is right up there with Lewis as one of, if not the greatest, you know, athlete of the 20th century. Uh, Mr. Roberts will, Professor Roberts will join us soon, and um, he's the 101st anniversary professor and distinguished professor of history at Purdue University, and he's written dozens of books. He's written books on John Wayne. He's written books on the Chicago Cubs. He's written books on American history and American historical figures which in a real larger sense are really world historical figures. And 
Um, we will discuss his book, Blood Brothers. But as as uh, last Bell Boxing mentions, you know, when I spoke to him, I should tell you, Last Bell and Scrapbook, when I when I emailed him a while ago, you know, I would said, well, let's talk about the Jack Johnson book because that's endlessly fascinating. And I thought, well, I want to talk about the Joe Lewis book because that's a great book too. And then I thought, well, the Dempsey book is also a fantastic book. And then I thought, logically, we have to talk about and Ali um, uh, Malcolm X. And, and one of the things about Ali and Malcolm X, I have to tell you about this book. I found out about this book um, in a different way than, than most people. My phone. So I'm not sure if he called me back or. So when I saw me just speak to him, actually still speaking, I had the phone on. So I had to hang up to allow him to do that. Okay. So I, I was at a Toronto Sports Film Festival six, seven years ago. And more of the former great boxing writer for the Toronto Star grabbed me and said, You got to get this new book by Randy Roberts and Johnny Smith. It's the book, the book Blood Brothers. And um, you will love it. And it's not, you know, it's warts and all. So um, I'm just checking my phone here. This is highly unprofessional on my part, but I've been called worse. Um, uh, okay, so we'll see what happens. He's just changing, and uh, right now we have me blabbering on for 42 minutes. Eric, what's the time limit we have? If he were to come on in like three or four minutes. Oh, no time limit. Oh, great. Well, that's great. Okay, good. So maybe we'll take him to like 74 hours of speaking. I don't think that'll happen. Um, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I hope I didn't hang up on him now because he just called me before and at 2.44 and then I hung up. So I'm going to place a call to him. Oh, here he is again. Okay. Hello. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I can ask our producer as I'm talking to you. Okay. I can ask him to resend it to you. Studio, studio link. That's it. IO. Okay. 
I can have them resend it to you. Okay. Can you refresh it like on another app or, or is that? Okay, I'll, I'll do that. Right. Okay, I'll do that right now. Eric, can you resend the link to Randy, please? So he's going to do that right now. Just the link to click on. Okay. Okay, no problem. So I'll just, I, I just have to get, um, I'm just going to copy your, your um, email. And then um, I will send that. I will send that to him. Um, so I want to get this straight. R. Roberts at Purdue.edu, right? Okay. Right. Yeah. Purdue. Um, edu. Okay, so he should have the, the uh, he should have that to you momentarily. And hopefully we can fix this. Sorry about that. Okay, so he just said I just sent it. Yeah, I had the electricity was off in my building for last week, so it, it played havoc. Wow. Wow. Okay. okay, so he should have sent it by now. Okay. Usually when I have problems with my computer, I call my daughter over. She just... <laughs> right, you're lucky. Hmm. Right. Mm 
Right. I'm the same way. My daughter just ends up doing it for me. And I said, why don't you just show me? And she said, I don't have time. You're not going to get it. So I'll just do it. I'll just do it for you. Right. No, neither do I. My my brother always is easy for him, but he just he said, I'm not gonna tell you again for the third time. He came to my house once and he wrote on the wall in marker RTFM and I said, What's that? Read the fucking manual. You can't call me anytime, day or night just because I'm your brother, because you don't know what you're doing on a computer. Yeah, I, I, yeah, neither do I, and I have a Mac, so it's supposed to be for people that don't have patience. Okay. Could you go on through Google? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the one. Exit. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that'd be wonderful. Oh, great. I'm sorry that I'm that ugly, but... Okay. Okay. So Eric, he's in... Uh, Professor Roberts is in the studio? Okay, great. Thank you. That's great. So we're going to play the intro, Randy, and then we'll bring you right in.
name is Lou Eisen. Welcome to Ring Talk. Today we have a fantastic show. We have one of my true heroes, Professor Randy Roberts. He's the 150th anniversary history professor at Purdue University. The man is brilliant. If you looked up brilliant in the dictionary, his face would be there. You recognize him. This man is known throughout the world. He has written almost 30 brilliant books. His most recent is A Season in the Sun, Mickey Mantle, which I just ordered. I can't wait to read. His books are definitive. I loved his book, as people have been mentioning on screen, Papa Jack on Jack Johnson. Joe Lewis' book had me in tears, Hard Times Man, which is the greatest title I've ever heard, and also his fantastic book on Jack Dempsey. And today we're going to discuss his, his groundbreaking book, Blood Brothers. Uh, about the fatal friendship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. I just wanted to mention that uh, Professor Roberts has been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize four times. Most people can't spell it, the word Pulitzer. This man is brilliant, and it's a tremendous, tremendous privilege and pleasure to have him on the show today. Please welcome Mr. Roberts. Hey, Lou, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. I hope I have this light okay. I hope it's, it shows. Oh, it's fine. Okay, great. It's fine. I was rereading. I thought, you know, this week, I with with your wonderful book, I I would reread a couple pages, and then of course I end up rereading the book because I can't put it down, which is a habit that happens with all your books. Of course, you pick them up, you start to read them, and then, you know, you can't put them down. Um, I had questions to ask you about uh, the relationship between Muhammad and and uh malcolm x and i guess the first question i want to ask you is what did each man get from each other that they didn't get from anyone else what that's was a key that that's it you know that, that that's a fantastic question um what did they get they got a sense of you know of confidence i think from each other you know ali had had a, had a sense of destiny about him, but I'm not sure he knew what his destiny was going to be. I think he felt that he he was a man of destiny. He said he was a man of destiny from the very beginning. But if someone would have asked him, "Well, what will your destiny be?" Then he would be, uh, you know, heavyweight champion of the world, youngest heavyweight champion. I don't really think he had a, an ideology, a mission to go with that sense of destiny. Whereas when Malcolm came into his life, he saw something. Malcolm, Malcolm made sense to him. Okay, the world didn't make sense to him. The racism in the world, the bitterness of his father, the the, the, the terrible divisions between black and white, the discrimination of black, that didn't make sense to him. You know, he didn't see the logic. Malcolm was the key. Malcolm opened the door. Malcolm provided the logic of the world, the logic of racism in America, of being stripped of his name as soon as he came to America, be turned into a slave with ancestors. So that it's it's easy on that side. And and I think Ali Clay at that time when they met gave Malcolm a sense of this is the future of black men, of the black women in America. Proud beautiful, confident, you know, before the, before Ali, uh, again, before Clay, Malcolm was dealing a lot with people like himself who had been through the prison system, 
who had felt the hard times, whose, whose horizons were frankly very limited. I mean, you know, you, you get out of prison, you're a black man, you get out of a prison at a, you know, you, you go in at 17 or 18 or 19 and you get out of first time 25 or so, you spent six years, you have virtually no education. You know, where do you go from there? You know, that's that's tough. The, the Nation of Islam tried to present a discipline and tried to present a, an avenue out, but it was hard to see. Why, why comes in, he's, he's just different, different class, yes. You know, is it surprising they hooked up given their divergent backgrounds that Malcolm's father was murdered and he had school teachers, white school teachers telling him he would be nothing. And Ali really grew up in the black middle class in Louisville, but for whatever reason, their personalities just instantly clicked. Yeah, they, you know, they, they saw so much of each other in, in one another. I mean, you know, they were both stood tall. They were both proud. They were both good looking. They were both, you know, unbelievably articulate, you know, they and, and they just presented the same kind of an image in the world. Although you're right, Malcolm comes from a more downtrodden, Ali comes from, he's middle class. He, he's not worried about what he's going to eat tomorrow. He's got two parents. They're great parents. But he can see the bitterness in his father. He can see the residue of racism all around him in Louisville. I mean, he, they live in a, a nice community neighborhood, but it's an all-black neighborhood. You know, they, this is not a segregated town at all. Right, and Kentucky didn't join the Confederacy, right, during the Civil War. They stayed separate. They were the Union. That's exactly right. But it was a border state. You know, it was, it was like Tennessee. Uh, there were battles fought in Kentucky, but it was, it was like Tennessee that uh, it, there was not much Kentucky, Tennessee, Louisiana could really do because they were so quickly grasped Maryland the same way, so quickly taken over by the Union. Did... um. When when was the first meeting between Ali and Cassius Clay and Malcolm? Did this occur in New York or Detroit? Detroit. It Detroit. was there. Were, there was a, a convention at that time uh, that the Nation of Islam was holding a convention, and the Honorable Liza Muhammad was going to speak, and a, a, an acquaintance of uh, of of Ali, a person he had met when he was training down in Miami Beach, called him up. Uh, Sailor, I mean Captain Sam called him up and said, hey, the, he had, Ali had met Captain Sam Miami, but Captain Sam said, you know, the, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is going to speak uh, in, in Detroit. Would you like to go? You know, get a chance, maybe meet Malcolm X. And Ali and his brother, Rahman, who was Rudy at the time, said, yeah, sure. And they pick him up and they drive him up. And they met at a luncheonette before Elijah Muhammad spoke. And, you know, Clay, of course, knew who Malcolm X was. I mean, you know, he had heard Malcolm X's, I mean, saw him on television, and listened to his speeches when he, when he could. But he had, he, had, he had never met him. And so he, he goes up to him and just sticks out his hand and says, Hi, I'm, I'm Cassius Clay. And Elijah Muhammad says, Great. Elijah Muhammad had no idea who he was. Cassius Clay assumed that every person in Christendom knew who he was. But, but 
Malcolm was not a particular big boxing fan, didn't follow sports. The Nation of Islam really kind of condemned professional sports. But they saw each other. They got along. They spoke a little bit. And then they started seeing each other con con uh, secretly over the next number, few years. It's surprising what you say because, as you said, the Nation of Islam condemned sports, especially boxing, which they looked at as black men fighting for the pleasure of white men for the white man's money and white men getting all the money. And, but they made an exception for Cassius Clay. Was that to benefit them because he was becoming so big at the time? They didn't make an exception immediately, but because you got to remember the heavyweight champion at this time is yeah. Sonny Liston. And Sonny Liston seemed to be invincible. And Sonny Liston basically was invincible. I mean, I think Sonny Liston and a three-year period, I think three major fights, they were all ended in the first round. So he had fought very few rounds when he fought. So they didn't want to go out on the limb and 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 say, this guy's a member of the Nation of Islam. And, and Clay probably wasn't a member of the Nation of Islam at that time. Very sympathetic to the movement. And he had heard, he had heard that there was a famous song, you know, heaven is a white man, a white man's heaven is a black man's hell. It was terrible, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and Clay had listened to that. He had listened to speeches of Malcolm X and listened to speech of Elijah Muhammad. And so he he had he, he he understood what the nation was all about, but he hadn't joined yet. Because if, if he had out and out joined and said, I'm a member of the nation of Islam, this uh, nation of Islam and black Muslims were viewed as a kind of a hate group at this time. And if he had said that, his career would have been effectively over. He would have never gotten a shot at the heavyweight title. So he keeps it quiet. As far as the nation goes, <coughs> excuse me. As far as the nation goes, um, Ali is. Yeah, it's interesting. They're 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 sort of interested. Elijah Muhammad and some others are interested that this guy is following the nation of Islam, is sympathetic to the nation of Islam, but they're not going to go out on the limb and say, "Yeah, we're embracing him." When he if he fights for the title against Listings, he's just going to get slaughtered anyway, knocked out in a round or two. You know, the nation didn't need that. Right. Why did the Nation of Islam target Malcolm X for, I guess, redemption or to help him off his heroin habit in prison? Why him? Malcolm? Malcolm was a, a, a great recruit for the Nation of Islam. Or not a great, I wouldn't say a great recruit at first, but it was, it was really Malcolm's brother who became a member of the Nation of Islam first. And then he kind of recruited Malcolm X. And then Malcolm was in prison. And they started to read up. Okay, he started, okay, this makes sense. And when Malcolm got out of prison, he went to go see Elijah Muhammad and wants to work for them. And, and then they see, Elijah Muhammad and the other nation members see, this guy's great. We're trying to build an organization. This guy is dynamic. He, he's a speaker. He, he'll attract, he will attract all sorts of people, particularly people like himself who spent time and time in prison. And we're, we're looking for something. And, and he has the answers. And his, his, his mosque, uh, the, his, where he preaches in Harlem, becomes the leading place for the nation of Islam. And he's the, he's the top moneymaker. He's the top recruiter. He's the guy that when they, the show in back in the late 50s came out, early 60s, um, on the, 
the hate that America produced by uh, Mike Wallace. Right. Malcolm X is the face of the Nation of Islam. He's a far more dynamic speaker and dynamic person than Elijah Muhammad ever was. Well, that's one that leads to my next question. Do you think Elijah Muhammad saw him later on as a threat to his own leadership? Saw Malcolm? To Malcolm, yes. Uh, absolutely. And there's no question about, you know, by the time, well, Malcolm's going to be killed by members of the Nation of Islam. And by the time that Malcolm is dies, he's already split from the Nation of Islam. He's organized, beginning to organize a splinter movement in which in which he wants Ali to play a central role, to be the to be the Malcolm X of his new movement. That's, you know, that's my favorite thing in your book. It captures this incredible time in American and world history, you know, from from um, Kennedy's assassination on November 22nd, 63, to Ali's ascension. He's almost picking up the throne of Kennedy in February of, of, of um, 64. And that, I don't know how many people today younger than us would realize how important that was in determining not just the future of the United States, but the future of the entire world. And, and you know, you have Ali and you, you have Malcolm uh, together at, at the time before, before he challenged Liston uh, for the title, Ali was getting criticized, as you all know, in the white newspapers. He, he doesn't know how to fight. He pulls back. He, he doesn't sit down on his punches. He doesn't know how to jab. He, he moves too much. Did Malcolm do anything to, to ignore this criticism or that it was white criticism just to keep doing what you're doing? Well, I think, I think Ali was extraordinarily confident in his own boxing style. Okay. He, he's not changing he, a little bit. Angelo Dundee, changed a few things, got him to do one thing or another, but Angelo Dundee was a very strong believer in a fighter style is a fighter style. Right. You, you know, don't tinker with it too much. You know, don't try to, don't try to turn an alley into a power puncher. Don't try to turn Sonny Liston, though he didn't manage, he would have said, don't try to turn Sonny Liston into a dancer, into a Sugar Ray Robinson. Right. Greatness is greatness and, and it's different. Ali pulled back from punches. Okay, nobody pulls back from punches. This is, as people have said, it's like being on a train track when tra a train's coming and trying to pull back from a train. It's not going to work. You're going to get hit. And and Ali did get hit a few times. I mean, Doug Jones really, you know, hit him hard. And and so it what hands were too low, but his hands were so fast. I mean, you know, he, what he could do, no other heavyweight could do. So, you know, the, you had that. What Malcolm brings to the equation is confidence that, again, there's a higher power at work here. Mm -hmm. Allah, the supreme God, the supreme ruler, okay? He has a, a destiny for you. And that's why uh, Malcolm X goes into the locker room, dressing room, before the Liston fights. And he prays with, with uh, Ali. They, they bow to Mecca, bow to the east. Uh, and 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 he he at that time says you know God Allah has not brought you to this point in your life to let you lose you're you're part of his greater plan he has a purpose for you and it's not to be knocked out in the first round by Sonny Liston and so Allah is able to go out there confident that he can win well that's or 
If not, he was going to fake it till he makes it uh, because, you know, he had this confidence. Well, I, I, I mean, I love that story. I, Angelo Dundee was like a surrogate father to me. So I, I love that fact that, that you, you mentioned a key point. Uh, Angelo learned from Charlie Goldman, who trained Rocky Marciano, that no one invents a game to be beaten at their own game. So just like you said, you're good at that. And Ali's style, as Angelo pointed out, was only ever intended to work for Ali. It wasn't for anyone else. And it was so unique to him. And the, the point you bring up about Malcolm in the dressing room is, is fascinating because Ali admitted years later that he was a bit nervous. But after the first round, he goes to his corner and Angelo says, how about that? You're still here. Yeah. And Liston hadn't trained for the fight. You know, I was wondering, um, in 63, November 22nd, when, when President Kennedy was assassinated, Elijah Muhammad put out an order that no one's to comment on it. That's right. And Malcolm didn't listen. It, it, you know, he, he made the famous, you know, chickens coming home. Is that what marked him for death eventually? Or was it the comment about the philandering of, of Elijah Muhammad? I think it's when he started talking about Muhammad, uh, excuse me, Elijah Muhammad's personal life, the philandering, uh, the children born out of wedlock. <coughs> I think that's what what really causes that uh you know he's he will be after he says the chickens comes home to roost that whole statement that brouhaha um he, he'll be put on suspension kind of suspended you can't say anything in public at all and at that time i think elijah muhammad was trying to figure out he's probably gone okay and there were you know the, elijah was an older man and you know the idea is he wasn't going to be around forever Who's going to replace Elijah? And he had kids that wanted to replace him. There were there were a lot of different con contending forces within the nation of Islam. I don't really think Malcolm X envisioned himself as the replacement of Elijah Muhammad, but certainly the other contending forces saw him as the greatest threat. Because again, he's he's a cow he's a cowbell. Of, of the movement. He's the one that brings in the, the troops. He brings in the people. He brings in the publicity. You know, he brings it all to, all to them. So they, they're worried about him. And so eventually, when, when he does start to speak to reporters, when he shows up in Miami, when he's such a presence where he's always beside Cassius Clay still, uh, that's when the nation decides that there's going to be an irrevocable split. Does... Why didn't it adversely affect Elijah Muhammad when these revelations came out? You know, the believers were the believers. The right. critics were the critics. Uh, you know, today uh, we can look, and I hate to go into today's politics or anything, but or you know, Trump, yeah. regardless of what what we learn about Trump or investigations, I mean, there's still going to be, he's still going to have his supporters. Okay. If you're a believer, if you're a true believer, uh, you, you, you believe the leader, you, you believe even Malcolm X, when he would talk about Elijah Muhammad. Okay. And he would talk to Clay and teach Clay the teachings of, of Elijah Muhammad, of the nation of Islam. He would always preface it by saying the honorable Elijah Muhammad says this, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says this. So he was always teaching Clay that 
this, the, this voice of God, the voice of Allah in America is Elijah Muhammad. It's, it's not Malcolm X. You know, these, these pearls of wisdom that Malcolm would spout out, they're not coming from me. They're coming from Elijah Muhammad, okay, who speaks with God, who speaks with Allah. Um, so, you know, this is what people believe. You know, I, they're not going to believe what some report, white reporter says. They're not going to believe what they read in the New York Times. You know, they're going to believe what they read in Muhammad Speaks. And that's the, the, the organ of the Nation of Islam newspaper. When you look at the history of the Nation of Islam, W.D. Fard was, I believe, was a white man. And he disappeared. And there were rumors that Elijah Muhammad had done away with him. But are there any, is there any evidence to make that credible? Uh, you know, I always, I, I'm going to, have to go back and look at that. I thought Fard was a, was a black man, very light skinned. Okay, okay my mistake. Sorry. Yeah. Um, is there any evidence to what? That Elijah Muhammad. Oh, it had a, yeah. No credible information that I know of. Uh, it's, you know, those early years, uh, very difficult to reconstruct. You know, historians work with sources, and there just isn't, to my knowledge, that great of sources on that period. Right. Okay. Um, Jimmy Dundee, Angelo's son, was saying that a couple months before the Liston fight, he was playing I Spy with Muhammad. And on the walkie-talkie, he said, here I am, Cassius. And Cassius said, it's not Cassius. You know that, Jimmy, it's now Muhammad Ali. So did he make the switch, just not tell people before that? Uh, he was certainly moving to the Nation of Islam. Now, as far as I know, and you know, this is an area certainly I, I looked at, and my co-author Johnny Smith looked at, uh, it wasn't until a week or so after Ali, uh, Cassius Clay became heavyweight champion that Elijah Muhammad gave him the name of Muhammad Ali. Okay. <laughs> and that was supposed to be the idea was that, you know, if you're really faithful, first you were given your take, your safe slave name was taken away and you were given an X. So you would have been Cassius X. Okay. And he would have stayed Cassius X just like the Malcolm X and he had all sorts of, you know, there'd be William three X, four X, whatever. And, and, and then if you, after a certain period of time, indefinable, you, it could be years, it could be decades, uh, you would be given uh, your new name. You know, Elijah Muhammad was a new name. Uh, Malcolm X, when Cassius joins the movement, he becomes Cassius X. But he's only Cassius X for about a week or so. And then he becomes, Elijah Muhammad says, I, will, I am giving you a new name, you know, Muhammad Ali, as long as you follow me in, in my organization, you go with Malcolm X, that's not your name. That's not your name. And you're not, we don't want to have any part of you. Okay. You, you're part of that splinter organization, which we're taking care of. Uh, but if you stay with me, if you follow my teachings, then you're Muhammad Ali. Well, that brings up a, a very interesting point. If, if Ali stood by Malcolm X, does Malcolm X still get a sad? Or is that not possible? I mean, would well, it's a counterfactual question, so it's it is impossible to answer. But I'll say this: Muhammad, excuse me, Malcolm X believed 
that if Ali would have gone with him, he, that he would have probably gone back into the movement, into the nation of Islam, that he would have had such a, a, an important person to go with him back into the nation of Islam, the new heavyweight champion. He wasn't defeated by Sonny Liston. He defeated Sonny Liston. And he could say, I defeated Sonny Liston because I believe in an Allah, that I'm a follower of Elijah Muhammad. Uh, that's the way Malcolm X thought. When Ali doesn't go with Malcolm X, when he stays with uh, Elijah Muhammad, then uh, then Malcolm X knows he's a dead man walking. And, and his mood starts to change. He spends less and less time in the United States and, and, and he frets that it, I, I, it's just a matter of days, weeks, that my, I'm, I'm a dead man walking, essentially. I mean, his house was burned down, was firebombed. Right. Yes. His, when his children are in there, so he, he knows what's coming. You know, it, the, 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 the converse side of that is if Ali stands by him, does that threaten Ali's own life? In other words, did the Nation of Islam say to Ali, you know, if you value your life, you'll, you'll drop him and stay with us? Certainly Ali, in later years, after he leaves the nation, will say that. Will say that, you know, I know, I know what happens if you, if you leave the nation. I mean, it wasn't like Malcolm X was the first person to be, you know, punished deeply for splitting away from the movement or criticizing the movement. You know, other members of the nation of Islam that had left had, been, had received extraordinary beatings. Anyway, so they knew that Ali knew it was a possibility. That's just an incredible time. Uh, um, it is. You know, it's amazing. If you look at it, it's like a new culture is being born between mm -hmm. the Kennedy assassination and the it's February 25th, 1964 fight at Liston and, and Ali and, and uh, in Miami. You know, you have the Beatles come to America during that period. You know, there's a, almost like a revolution in music that's taking place. It's like the emergence of it's like the emergence of the 1960s. You know, the, if somebody asked me to talk about the 1960s, I say the 1960s really began with the assassination with the Beatles, with Ali coming up until that time. We're still in the 50s. But suddenly there's a, a, a new age, the age of Aquarius, I guess. Is that what the song says? Yes. I'm not sure, I'm not sure it mentions Ali in the age of Aquarius, but it no, should. But but you, you you had a fantastic point, as you always do. Ali said, as you know, right after beating Liston, I talk to God every day. If God's yeah. with me, can't nobody beat me. Yeah. And, I mean, that, that incredible time period, Ali's almost at the forefront of three different movements. I mean, later on he is, you know, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and the youth movement all coalescing together. Yeah. They all, they all come around that guy. Just as they, you know, those movements come around the Beatles too. I mean, you know, really to me, the iconic poles, the iconic forces of the 1960s are Ali and the Beatles. I mean, it, certainly from a cultural sporting perspective. Absolutely. I mean, there's a story Angelo told me that when they first met at the Fifth Street gym, Ali did one of his old lines to John Lennon, you're not as dumb as you look. Yeah. Lennon, as you know, Lennon said, yeah, but you are. <laughs> and then years later, in the 70s, he apologized to Muhammad Ali. He said, I really feel bad about that. I didn't know you, how great you were, how moral you were in standing up against the war. And and Ali said, I, just a joke. I didn't, 
I didn't. I wasn't upset at all. You know, look, and apparently Lana was shocked that it meant nothing to Ali when he said. Ali laughed. You know, Lou. One time I was uh, at a convention. I mean, at a, a university, and it, we had a there was a symposium that was being done on Ali, and you had academics like myself giving papers on Ali, and I, I gave a paper on Ali that I talked about. I'm not even sure what I talked about at this time, but afterwards, what I remember is there was a, a cocktail party hosted by the head of the history department at Miami University in Ohio. And Al Lee attended the sessions, attended the, the, the program, and he listened to my talk and listened to the other talks. Wow. And he was at the, at the uh, program. He was at the, the cocktail party. And at that time, you know, Parkinson had set in his, he, he didn't speak with the same alacrity that he used to. And so you're sort of standing around, you know, people were talking and drinking. So I went over to Ali. I, I went over to the host first and I said, do you have a stack of cards? Uh, you have a deck of cards? And the guy said, yeah, and he brought it to me because I know Ali loves, he loved magic tricks. He loves card tricks. So I said, hey champ, you know, how about a card trick, him and I? So he took a card and he did a card trick. And I took the pack and I did one. You know, let's face it. We all have probably two card tricks in our in our bag. And I used my two and he used probably his two and he had some other ones. And but before he went, he gave me one of those hands shaking towards me and said, you're not as dumb as you look. And, you know, so, <laughs> So I thought I felt I felt that's great, you know, that I that I had Ali give me one of those too. That's fantastic. Um, the the um, uh, I have several other questions. I, I, at that time, this is sort of a point. It's hard to say, but the 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 hit on. Oh, before I get to the, that, how close was Bill McDonald, the promoter, the money man? to canceling the fight if Muhammad doesn't go back, doesn't go to the media and say, I'm not a Muslim, it's all a mistake, announced him. Um, well, of course, Ali never said that. Right. Uh, but Malcolm left. Ali said, I will not say I'm not a Muslim. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm not going to betray the Muslims, the nation of Islam. Um, and, and, and McDonald says he's ready to call the fight off. And that's when Malcolm X said, look, I'll leave. Okay. He's Malcolm's the flashpoint here. I'll leave, but I'm coming back for the fight, but I'll leave until, you know, maybe a week between before he comes back for the fight. And so McDonald said, okay, it's going to go on. Okay. Is that true? It's, it's hard to say. Uh, when has negative publicity really negatively affected a prize fight? You know I mean? Right. Negative publicity sometimes will build up a prize fight. You know, had they built those two th contrasts together, who knows what? It, who knows what would happen if Sonny Liston suddenly was wearing the good guy's shirt and and, uh, and hat? I don't know. It could have been interesting. So McDonald had a lot of money to lose, and he probably he did, did lose a fair amount of money on the fight. He did, but Angel Dundee told me he didn't lose it because of Malcolm. He lost it because people didn't think it was going to be a, a, a competitive fight. Yeah, look at what look at what happened in, in with Patterson in the Vegas fight with Patterson and Liston. The second fight, come on, you fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And oh, you know, yeah. two one round knockouts. And the words Angelo used, where he said Muhammad was an amusing flake. That's what the newspaper said. 
And he said, out of something like 99 sports writers, 93 pick, list him within two rounds, two from New York, one from Britain said, Clay could win because he's only, like you said earlier, he's only had three, he's only fought three rounds in the last three years, one against Albert Westfall, two against Patterson, and he hasn't really trained. So, but still, Liston was the big favorite, as you said. And uh, Chris, or Angelo, excuse me, told me that Ali was on his bus. He was leaving because after McDonald gave him the ultimatum, but Chris Dundee said, I'll tell you what, don't announce that you're a Muslim. Wait one day till you win the title. And then after that, it's a fait accompli. They can't do anything about it. Yep, and that's what he did the day afterwards at the press conference. Yeah, it was a it was a, a tumultuous time. And I can, you know, boxing was was on the slide at that time too. I mean, Ali really resurrects the sport. Uh, you know, you had the boxing hearings, you had the, the commission talking about crime and exploitation in boxing of the the, the 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 fight between Emo Griffith and Benny Kid Perrette and Fred dies in the ring. I'm trying to think. This was a little before Davey Moore died, wasn't it? It was Davey. Right. It was just before, but they all happened within the same time period because yeah. Alejandro Lavarani, the heavyweight, died just after that too. Yeah, he went. Yeah, he he was he was knocked into a coma. Right. He died a few years later, I believe. I, I read. You know, that was a sad story. I I know they he went back to Argentina and he died in Argentina. After. That's right. I'm not sure he ever ever really came out of the coma that he. No, was. he didn't. No, and, and, you know, with, with the um, fight with uh, Benny Kid Pret, Angelo and other people uh, had gone to Manuel Farrell, Perret's uh, manager, and said he's a shot fighter after what he took from Gene Fulmer. Oh, Gene Fulmer just brutalized him. Brutalized him, yeah. And, you know, Perret complained before the fight. He had blood from his nose, blood from his ears, his head hurt. And his trainer apparently said to Angelo, if he dies, I get another one. And Angelo said, he's a shot fighter. You can't yeah. put him in against anyone. You have to retire him. But in Ring of Fire, the DVD on him or the video, his wife said he was illiterate in both Spanish and English. What else was he going to do? There was nothing. He, he, he had no money. The money he got paid for the last Griffith fight was stolen. It was There was no 40 grand there. He had no money. Yeah. And he's been getting good money for a lot of fights. And this was the mob. And so this leads to my next question. Is it a myth to say that the nation of Islam got rid of the mob's control of boxing? Well, of course, the mob never controlled Cassius Clay. Right. Uh, you know, he's pretty clean. Came, came out of the Olympics, went with Angelo. Uh, and Angelo, I think, was pretty much up and up. Um, although, you know, I mean, Angelo had met Frankie Carpo one time, which was a great story. You probably know they met in an elevator. And right. Angelo said, hey, you're, you're Frankie Carpo. He says, nope, I'm not. He says, I don't know you and you don't know me, and let's keep it that way. And his brother Chris almost had a stroke when he told him the story. Yeah. Now, Chris knew Frankie Carpo. Um, but, you know, so Ali was pretty clean, just like Patterson was pretty clean, uh, you know, because of, because of his manager, yeah. but, but but certainly the nation protected Ali. Protected maybe is the wrong word, but he kept Ali from the clutches 
of, of the mob, but not from the clutches of the nation of Islam. You know, he lost his money that way. You know, he didn't retire yeah. that much either. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it, when Muhammad refuses to be inducted and makes his stand, the nation didn't financially support him or, or pay for his lawyers or anything. Other Joe Frazier helped him out. I mean, other people yeah. helped him out. Why did they abandon him? That's a great question. You know, maybe they there was there was a sense that you know he he's not the money earner that he once was. You know that that he was his publicity was not the good publicity that it once provided the nation. Um, hard to say. Hard to say. Is it also in that time America? You know, there's that video of him before the Chicago. Uh, uh, athletic commission where the guy addresses him as Cassius Clay and he says Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. And it, it, was it because of the color of his skin and the fact that he joined the nation of Islam that, I mean, it created such a ruckus, but people changed their religion and their name all the time. Well, most, a lot of, virtually every actor and actress was changing their names and right. sometimes change their names would shorten their names or what have you. It's just that the nation of Islam was viewed as so, so it was so divisive. It was, and it continued to be viewed as an anti-white organization. And therefore, I mean, the media is controlled as essentially it's a white controlled media. And so this was the way they covered Ali. And it was, you know, had they understood the nation a little bit more, maybe they wouldn't had they viewed the nation more which what it, what it was was a nationalistic you know that it was black for black it was a sense of nationhood it was a sense of that the, we will take care of ourselves it's a, it was an uplifting movement that tried to divorce itself from whites um it was not really an anti-white hate group at all right well it's interesting you know Kareem abdul jabbar was in toronto recently for a for a B'nai B'rith Anti-Defamation League uh, conference on anti-Semitism. And he spoke about Louis Farrakhan. And he said, and he spoke about NBA players that made anti-Semitic comments. And he said, they're not anti-Semitic, they're just stupid. He said, it's different with Farrakhan, who is anti-Semitic. And he said, I was asked to join the nation in the 60s, but he said, they're not Muslims. Yeah, you know? well, that's, you know, that's, and of course, Ali's going to fall, Elijah Muhammad's son, uh, Wallace Muhammad, when he takes over the nation, and they move in a more traditional Islamic direction. Right, and Ali was a Sufi Muslim, wasn't he more moderate? Yeah. Because Ali didn't really hate anyone. He, he, you know, he he got along with everyone. He didn't really distinguish between color and and religion. I mean, his grandkids. One of his grandkids was bar mitzvah. And he was at the bar mitzvah. <laughs> no, I think Ali, I, there seems to be very few people he disliked. I don't even think he disliked, oh, well, it's hard for me to say, but I don't think he really even disliked, uh, disliked Joe Frazier. It was, I think Ali said, felt that what he said for a, in a boxing match was to build up the gate and everybody was going to win because it was going to bring more money in. And it, I, I think it kind of shocked them 
that people, some people took it real personally. Uh, Joe Frazier took it personally. Joe Frazier right. disliked Muhammad Ali. I won't say hated, but, and, and then that, that was, that rift was never, never solved, settled. No. Do you, do you think part of it on Muhammad's part was the fact that he, Muhammad felt he was standing up for civil rights for African-Americans and that Frazier and other black fighters shouldn't be going after the title because it's my title. I'm doing this for you, so you should respect that. But Frazier's attitude is, I got, I got a family. I have to make a living. This is what I do. Yeah. And Frazier... He was the one that, if you talked about the upbringing, I mean, this is a guy that's born desperately poor in South Carolina. And, you know, he he had to struggle a whole lot more than Malcolm, or excuse me, than Cassius ever struggled, uh, Muhammad. That's right. I mean, he always said that. I, he said, yeah. I grew up really poor and I had to leave uh, South Carolina because I'd beaten up a white guy. And if I didn't leave, I would have been lynched. Yeah. So it's 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 um, um, incredible. I mean, Muhammad always did. Muhammad ever resolve in himself? You think that his regret over abandoning Malcolm because he loved Malcolm? Oh, it, it, yeah, and you, you could see this in his the, his when he was uh, after he died at his funeral service, where one of Malcolm's daughters spoke, uh, you know, eloquently. I think I think he did love Malcolm. And I think he continued to. Uh, they were they were just divided, and I, there's no question. He, in his later years, said how much he regretted how he treated Malcolm. It wasn't right because at the time, you know, he was saying things like, "If you oppose the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, you deserve to die." I mean, you know, he was very strident in his opposition, and you know, I think he also regretted how he treated Joe Lewis calling Joe Lewis an Uncle Tom. And Joe Lewis was the furthest thing from being an Uncle Tom. Uh, Joe Lewis was a really incredibly decent person, was a race man who stood up for the blacks uh, and for his race and loved his race. And he, he was not an Uncle Tom, but Ali, you know, kind of did that to him, that's, put that label on him. That's one of the most profoundly upsetting things to me. Your book is on Joe Lewis was brilliant and the title is the best title I've heard for any book ever, Hard Times Man, because people don't realize Joe Lewis had a stutter and he got, people made fun of him. I had a stutter. And when you have a stutter, you don't want to talk. Yeah. And, but, but Lewis was very for civil rights and did so many things behind the scenes and calling Truman Gibson, as you all know, and other people in the government and get it done that way. He wasn't a guy to put it out in your face. But I mean, as you said, I mean, I, I think Joe Lewis is the single greatest athlete ever to have lived and certainly the greatest heavyweight champion of all time. No one could do what Lewis did in the ring. No, no I, I, lo I loved writing that book on Joe Lewis. Um, that was, comes through. Uh, yeah. You know, there's two types of people I think sometimes you see in this world and people make a difference. Some are, some are earth shakers. And Ali was an earth shaker. Some are ground smoothers, okay, that, that try to calm things down and smooth it out and make progress in that way. I think Lewis, and to some degree, was a ground smoother. Um, but, yeah, but Lewis was, I mean, this is one. The, the title of the book comes from the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, where the, she says, you know, that in hard times, 
in the depression, during the depression, God gives us, sends us somebody to get us through it. And in the Great Depression, he sent us, you know, Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson. And so that's why where I got the, uh, okay, I like that. So I got hard times man, but Joe Lewis was the hard times man, but he was sent for a reason. And you, you talk about a universally loved person, uh, particularly among blacks that divided nobody. I mean, Joe Lewis was just amazing. And this is a time, Lewis's time was a time where, you know, the greatest team title you could have was World Series champions. The greatest individual title was the heavyweight champion of the world. Boxing and baseball, that was it. It wasn't basketball, it wasn't football, it was boxing and baseball at a professional level. Yeah, it, you know, my father told me when he was growing up in Toronto, he was born in 1928, so he remembered when Joe Lewis fought Schmeling, he was nine or 10, and he said he remembered going to synagogue and the rabbis would say prayers for Joe Lewis. And he said, in Toronto, and then I realized later, of course, when I saw an interview with the actor Jack Klugman, this was all over North America and Europe. The streets were dead empty. All you could hear was radios in every household and apartment, the fight, because that fight was for the championship of not just a heavyweight title, but the way the war would turn out, as Bud Schulberg said. And it, 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 no one can really know today. I mean, of course you do, but it's hard for people today to understand how much Joe Lewis meant to the entire world. I mean, Jews in Germany listened to the fight, and when Lewis won, it gave them hope. Yeah, it, you know, Woody Guthrie in his autobiography talks about, I think he was in Santa Fe at the time, walking across through the town of Santa Fe and just listening to fight on radio. That, you know, every window was open, every the sound, every radio was turned on to, to that fight. And, of course, you know, Jimmy Carter talks about where he grew up in Georgia, Plains, Georgia, that his father had a radio. And some of the, the black men that worked on the, on the farm was asked if they could come and listen to the fight. And father said yes, and a hundred or more blacks showed up, way more than they thought. And they stayed outside, okay, they never came in the house, but the radio was turned up so you could hear it outside. And Jimmy Carter said, after the fight was over, that, that quietly, everybody, all the farmers went back to their huts. And he said, and afterwards, all hell broke loose. They, they just were, you know, there was wow. just a huge celebration that took place. That's Jimmy Carter, one of the great memories of his childhood, he said. Wow. A Angelo Dundee told me one time he, he saw Joe Lewis in Vegas at Caesars. And they, you know, as you know, they gave him money to gamble with. Yeah. And he, Joe Lewis approached Angelo quickly and said, listen, I just lost. I need you to lend me five grand. And this is, he said, 1971, 72. And he said, five grand? When, when, will, you, when will I get it back? And he said, my next fight. <laughs> and he said, when's your next fight? He said, when you try to get the money back from me. <laughs> That's a great story. You know, same, guy, same token. Uh, Billy Kahn was out in, in Caesars and Joe was there. And he was Joe the same way. He was giving his pocket money his, that he would gamble away every night or he would give it away. Okay. People would come up to him and, and hit Joe up. Joe, you know, I have a sad story. Can you give me 500? Can you give me a hundred? Can you do this? And Billy was with him and a few people came up and Joe gave money to him. And Joe and Billy Kahn said, Joe, that guy was just, 
he was bullshitting. Okay. He, he didn't, you know, he was giving you a line and Joe said, I know, but I was just going to lose the money anyway. Uh, yeah. He was going to lose it at the table anyway. So. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think that Ali, the things he said about Lewis, I think Ali was sort of annoyed that Lewis would never give him credit for being as great as he was. And Lewis had to know how great Ali was because of how great Joe Lewis was. Sure, sure. You know, Joe Lewis, did he ever put down a fighter in his life? I don't think so. You know, no, no matter how bad he beat his one, did he defend a title like 25 times or something yeah. like that? No matter how many people he beat badly, he'd always say, oh, he was a good contender. He hit me really hard sometimes. You know, I, I, you know, that I, he was, he was a worthy contender. He never trashed anybody, even Schmeling. He didn't trash. No, that's, that's right. And, you know, there's that show, uh, Kirk Gowdy was hosting a show years later. I can't remember what it's called on NBC with um, Galento and Galento's getting angry. I'm not a bum and I was never a bum. And Kirk Gowdy says, Joe never called you a bum. The way so, it was. Is that the show? Yeah, that's it. Thank you. And and he's you remember after the fight, you know, yeah, it was Galento good. He hit me hard enough to knock me down. Got to be good right. to do that. Yeah, he hit, hit me. It's exactly what he said. And Galantos was the one that called everybody a bum. And, right. and I think Lewis said, "Why? Why? What for does that fat man, little man call me a bum?" And Galento would call him and say horrible things about his wife. So Lewis wanted to kill him in the ring, and you saw every punch. Almost raised a cut on Galento, but he butchered him after he got up from the knockdown. Oh, what a beating! I—it's—it's it's hard to imagine taking those kind of punches. That's yeah. the other thing with with Ali, with that, that I think he showed in the fight with with List in that first fight, though people didn't want to say it or say it. Um, but you know, he he gets the eye the the Menzel solution or whatever he gets Menzel, into his yeah. eyes. Yeah, and he can't see. And he has that round where people, in, in people's imaginations, they think he just danced away, danced around Lewis until he could see. In point of fact, not Lewis, around Liston. But in point of fact, Liston hit him hard during those that period of time. I mean, Ali has absorbed an unbelievable amount of punches. And he showed what he showed throughout his later career is that he, he could take anything. I mean, he he could yeah. take about any to his detriment. He could take about any bunch that anybody could deliver, whether it was Foreman or Frazier or all of whoever. Them. Yeah, yeah, Morton yeah. or Angela said. Angela said that after the Liston fight, Ali's as you just flanked were all red and bruised, and yeah, he said Liston gave him a ferocious beating in those rounds because uh, um, I, I read in one of. I'm not sure if, if it was your book or if it was a book by Thomas Hauser where they said when Ali was blinking, which was deliberate, because Liston had done this to Eddie Machen and Zora Foley. I mean, this was common in boxing to put Monsell's solution and blind the other guy. The only difference was Eddie Machen and Zora Foley. Zora Foley didn't speak out about it. He was told to shut up. Eddie Machen did, and both of them died under mysterious circumstances. But Ali said it on the air after the fight. He said, he blinded me. He's got dirty men in this corner. 
And that that was almost a revolutionary thing. You wouldn't speak out against the mob publicly like that. No, it was, it, yeah, it was amazing. You know, that was an amazing fight. The other thing, of course, of that fight that that I always find kind of interesting is was a fight thrown, because it's 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 as if listen. Some people want to say listen through the fight. Well, if he threw the fight, what was he doing? Putting something on his gloves to win the fight. You, right. you can't cheat to win and throw the fight. I don't think you know. It, right. No, I. It doesn't I, make any sense. Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, for same in the second fight when Liston goes down, um, that was a typical move that Angelo taught Muhammad. Slipped the jab. Angelo had seen in in um, on films of of Liston that when he jabbed, his head was out over his front foot, which put him oh. off balance. So he said, "Slip it, move to your right, hit him with a counter." And if you watch the second fight, in the first five seconds. Ali almost drops him with that same combination and and Liston survived but the mob didn't allow their fighters to take dives unless they owned the fighter they were diving for yeah and they had no point they had no money in Ali yeah the the other the, the second fight when you watch it the, the counts messed up I mean Liston gets to a knee he's watching for the count and and at count of nine he gets up, but then Nat Fleischer says there's it's it's fourteen and the fight's over and Jersey Joe Walcott I think kind of doesn't know what to do and so he says that the fight was over that he was down that he was out well he was never down to the count of ten he was up at nine I mean he was down yes he was down for fourteen seconds but the, he followed the count which is what you would do right he, that's, he was that's ready to go on. Yeah, that was I. I have a, a book coming out on the con most controversial fights, and you know Fleischer wasn't even there in an official capacity. No, he should have kept his mouth shut. He got he he involved himself, and listen when I asked him why you fell back or stayed down, he said because Ali and it's true Ali was a madman. He's running around the ring. Yeah, he, he's he's circling around me. I'm not going to get up at that time. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I guess Nat deserved this. You can say whatever you want to say, I guess, in a fight, but but uh, the referee and the officials shouldn't have listened to him. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, they the correct thing would have been for Walcott to not count until Ali went to a corner and stayed there. Liston was right that he thought Ali could have hit me or hit me with his knee, and I mean, it was a confluence. It was all these things happening simultaneously. It would be it would be like. It would be similar to saying that Tunney lost the long fight count. Right. He was down on the canvas for 14 seconds or what have you. But he was just watching the referee. He was waiting for an eight or a nine count, and then he stood up. Uh, so right. what? He's been down for 12 seconds or 13 seconds. It's it's the count that matters, not how long he's on the canvas. That's correct. That's, you know, the interest, it's interesting you bring up Tunney Dempsey because in Roger Kahn's book about Dempsey, he said that there was mob influence on the referee to make, because he said Dempsey goes down the next round and he doesn't send, Dave Barry doesn't send Tunney to the farthest neutral corner. But the thing is, Tunney got up right, or Dempsey got up right away without a count. Yeah. Well, there wasn't a reason to send Tunney to the neutral corner and everyone in boxing then was controlled by the mob. So it's not really... You know, it, it wasn't uncommon at that point. Yeah. You know, and, and Liston said after the second fight, 
I was on my feet fighting back. Yeah, he, he, he got up and he was fighting back. He was going to go forward. Now, I, I yeah. think Ali would have won the fight, but still. I agree. I don't think Liston would have made it out of the round even, but right, he was fighting back. Exactly. And, and, and there were those reports in Sports Illustrated after that uh, Ash Resnick, his handler, said, apparently told people that don't bet on the fight. The fight's not going to go more than a round. Liston and Resnick made millions betting on Ali. But, you know, if he's a mob fighter and it's a fixed fight and he bets with mob bookies, the word's going to go out and the odds are going to go down. He's not going to make anything. Yeah, I, th I think, yeah, I think people would have, the people on the know, a certain group of people certainly would have heard it from Resnick if there was a, a, if a fix was on. And I'm not sure that, I don't know what the betting odds were for that fight. But I don't think, Liston I don't think was that, favored. Yeah, Liston was favored. Yeah, he favored to win. Jeez. He was favored to win when it was supposed to be in Boston. And then they said he just lost all hope when Allie had the hernia. Yeah. That's what he, that's what they say that he was in good shape. He was ready to go, and then Ali got the hernia in Boston and got delayed for a while. This raises an interesting point. Do you think Liston may have been one of the most profound victims then of that time period because he was caught in between the old guard and the new guard. He he didn't belong. The new people didn't want him. The youngsters, you know, the youth movement, anti-war movement. He was illiterate, so the university crowd didn't want him. And the old guard didn't particularly like him because he was black. So, I mean, he was sort of caught in the middle. He couldn't win either way. Sonny Liston, to me, is one of the tragic figures in boxing. I mean, yeah, I think it's appropriate. Because we don't know when Sonny Liston was born, the day he was born. We don't know the day that he died. Uh, you know, as he was, you know, his father brutalized him. His mother was not the most compassionate woman. I mean, you know, she had her problem, her own problems. Uh, you know, the mob. Stole you know, maybe, maybe, you know, John Vitale and Blinko, Blinky Palermo, you know, they may have cared about him as more, more than anybody else. You know, there was a Catholic priest that cared about him a little bit and he had some friends, uh, but certainly there were no large groups of people. Reporters made fun of him. Uh, you know, he certainly wasn't loved in East, in St. Louis, in East St. Louis. He wasn't loved in Philadelphia. He was run out of Denver. You know, he probably, you know, Ash Resnick probably treated him as well as anybody treated him. Uh, so, I mean, was he a mob fighter? Yeah, but, you know, who else cared about him? Right, and and many fight. It, that, that's one of the things, Randy, that I, I don't think fight fans understand is that it wasn't the fighter's choice to be a mob fighter. You were no. going to do it or going to another job. Yeah, and, and, and fighters that weren't mob fighters in the 30s and 40s were exploited by somebody else. I mean, you know, if you're a fighter, you're go it was like you're going to be exploited by somebody. It's right. a matter of who. Right, or you could be a Billy Graham and not go with the mob, but then you're not going to get a title. Yeah, exactly. whether you Whether you win or not. I mean, listen. Or a Jake LaMotta. Or Jake LaMotta. It took a long time to get that title shot. After. Even after he threw the fight to Billy Fox, he had to wait yeah. three years and pay 20 grand. Yeah. So these, these, so when, when Ali beats Liston, 
The mob still has Ernie Terrell, who beats Macon for the WBA title. And, I mean, they. it looks like, I mean, the belief was for a while that, as I said earlier, the Nation of Islam indemnified, maybe that's not, protected Ali and got rid of the mob. But the mob's influence on boxing lasts right until today. They're just not as upfront as they were before. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a crazy sport, but, it, yeah. but, an, but an interesting one. Yes. I mean, Angelo would say to me, if you're going to talk about the mob, stop talking about mobsters around 1955. Because you don't want anyone being alive <laughs> coming after you. And at the Hall of Fame in New York, at Canastoa, we'd encounter people and he would say, ignore them. <laughs> don't talk to him don't look at him <laughs> and, and like you're saying his brother chris worked with palermo frankie uh, or blinky palermo and carbo in the 30s on trains promoting fights so for the lucchese so he knew i mean even before the first listen fight right jack nylon yeah wants to know who the referee is three four days before the fight yeah yeah so, I mean, it's impossible to get their their influence uh, out of the sport, unfortunately, because it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. He said, was Ali sincere when he said, he, in fact, like Liston, he felt sad when Liston died and he wanted a chance to be able to sit around and say, I didn't have said to you, it was just to build everything up, as he said? Yeah, I think so too. And I, I, I honestly think that he felt that way. Again, it's he thought I, I'm, I'm it's up to me to build the gate up okay so i'm gonna start this big ugly bear i'm going to raid to go to his house in the middle of the night and wake up his neighbors and say that i'm going to fight him i'm going to go into his training quarters and you know try to belittle him but you know sonny sonny didn't get that okay you know it was personal to sonny he, you know he, he didn't want people to talk about that he was illiterate, that, you know, pointing out his deficiencies and this or that. Supposedly, now, and, and you know the story as well as I do, that Liston thought that Clay was afraid of him, that they had around a gambling table in Vegas, Sonny was losing crap and, so, and craps, and Sonny wasn't the, the bright, the most sunshiny guy anyway, uh, you know, regardless of his name. And he was in a bad mood. And Clay said, kept getting on him, and then Sonny backed him in the corner and slapped him hard. And and Clay said, "What do you do that for?" You know, and he, he was, and Sonny thought he saw fear in Clay's eyes, and so he thought, "I've got this fight because this guy's already afraid of me." And then they meet in the center of the ring, and suddenly Sonny sees that this guy's pretty big. Okay, he's, he's bigger than I thought he was, and you know, and and he didn't look afraid of him. But I don't know. You've probably heard that story too. Well, Angelo said when he went to the center of the ring, he told Muhammad, don't slouch like you do. Stand up straight, look down on him. You're bigger than him. You're six three and a quarter. He's six one. And start talking to him. And Ali's saying, you know, you're I got you now. You're a sucker. You're a bum. You you now you fell into it. You can't escape now, Sonny. And after the first couple of rounds, Sonny says to Willie Reddish, and hit. He told me he can't punch. And then you see the unmistakable look of fear in Liston's face 
in the fifth or sixth round when Ali bursts the mouse under his eye and yeah. starts to rock him and then starts to, you know, he starts staggering him. And Angelo said that one of the things they, they put a lookalike of Lena Horne in the audience. <laughs> and who wouldn't want to be? I mean, she was gorgeous. And and say, you go home with her if you win. And Ali kept saying, you're not going home with Lena Horne tonight. I'm going home with Lena Horne tonight. <laughs> And so Muhammad's just Muhammad at one point Angelo said was calling his punches. You know, here it comes, you know, double jab right hand. And he said he was so quick, there was nothing Liston could do. He just got old. Yeah. He he was he was something. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I only got to meet him a couple of times through Angelo and I asked him if he was genuinely afraid. This goes back to what you were saying about the card trick. Uh, were you genuinely afraid of Liston? What do you think? And I said, of course. And he said, you're not as dumb as you look. And I said, actually, I'm a lot dumber than I look. <laughs> uh, he spoke to me for half an hour. You'd realize how truly stupid I am. But thank you. <laughs> but um, he, he, I mean, I, I know speaking with George Chivalo is not in great shape now. Uh, Chivalo was hospitalized when Ali died because he loved him so much. He said, how could you not like this man? He's making you money. He's your friend. He comes to your house. He meets your family. I mean, he said, he's just the greatest single person I ever met in my life. Shivalo was a really articulate guy for a long time after retirement. I, I know mm -hmm. he's run into problems lately, uh, but it was... Uh, you know, I've seen him on documentaries, and you know, he really was a great had great stories to tell and told them really well. I can tell, I can remember as a kid seeing those fights with Shivalo. And the only thing I can remember is Ali would throw a jab and pull it back. And as he was pulling it back, Shivalo's hands would be going up to block it, that he was that much faster, that he was just so fast. I mean, it must be for a guy like to fights like Shivalo to know that when he bores in on him, he's not going to be able to block punches. That his hands aren't fast enough to 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 take care of Ali's punches to get block him or get out get him out of his face. It was just an amazing, amazing display. Well, George George said that the just just as you said, Ali lands three is on your on, on your face. You go to counter and he's ten feet away from you already. And he said it's not. He's altering the reality. It isn't fair. You're, you're not allowed to be that quick. It's like Matrix. Yeah, it is absolutely because Chivalo um, was the first guy to go to distance, but you know he he just said there's there was nothing like him. I, I mean, he said he never fought anyone uh, completely like Ali. He said Ali was just the single greatest guy that he ever met, both in and out of the ring. And as you know, George lost three sons. He lost a wife to suicide, a granddaughter to cancer. So. I mean, George had it tough, but when those things happened, Ali was there for him, you know, and, and Ali came to see him. Ali came up to hug him after George's wife committed suicide just to tell him that he wanted George to know that he loved him. Oh, that's nice. You know, it, it meant that much to him. That's, that's, yeah, that's nice. Well, how about going to Oxford, Ohio, my Miami University, to listen to some academics give talks on them. Uh, you know, what heavyweight champion? Can you see Floyd Mayweather doing that or a heavyweight champion doing that? I mean, 
Yes, he would, they, we were celebrating Ali and talking about the importance of Ali, but nobody expected Ali to be there, to actually drive in from... Uh, yeah, the, he was coming back after a lunch break, and uh, Ali was on Ali's time. He was never on time. He was late because he knew nothing got started until he showed up. So it doesn't matter when the afternoon session is supposed to start. It's not going to start until Ali's there. And on the way back, he was in a limousine, and, uh, and and there was a young black youth looked in the limousine and then did a double take, you know, kind of like when he re recognized him. Ali said, stop the car. Stop the car. He got out, talked with the kid for a while, and then got back in the car and went on his way. But that's the kind of person he was, you know. Stop the car. Let me – I don't know that person, but let me talk to him. Maybe I can say something to him that may – that may hold for the rest of his life. You know, there, there's that famous film you see, film clip of him rescuing the young black man from the window who was out on the window ledge of a building. Ali was across the street, and this is in Los Angeles. And so they got Ali, to bring him up to the 28th floor. Ali leans out the window, grabs the man, and brings him in, this young kid. And Ali looked after the kid for the rest of his life. Oh, jeez. He, he, he didn't just do this for the publicity he did it and he's financially supported the kid and called them to see how he was doing that was the way he was and i think and i think you might mention this in the book that as you know the story when he waited for sugar ray robinson at his club yeah. in new york and robinson he waited hours in the winter and robinson just brushed by him like he was nobody and he he thought i'm never going to do that to anyone no he never did no if he was in the NFL, he would have been man of the year every year. Uh, he, he was an incredible force of nature. I, I, I would have, I, I, I want to know what you're, I mean, you probably had a similar reaction to a lot of other people. When Sports Illustrated named Michael Jordan the man of the century, you know, of the 20th century, I, it, I mean, how could you pick anyone other than a Muhammad Ali? I might say something about Sports Illustrated. Uh, I, I, it's impossible. Because Michael Jordan is an incredible basketball player. There's no doubt about it. But when you talk about man of the century, you've got to look at what his impact was outside of his sport, I think. What, what the impact of the personality, what he did to make this world a better place, other than be excellent, superb in his sport. And when you do that, you know, I, I don't see who's in front of Muhammad Ali. I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to think now. It's hard. You know, maybe the Klitschko in Kiev is doing a pretty darn good job. Right. But, but I can't see anybody above Muhammad Ali. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you earlier was, when, when he didn't go into the army, he refused induction. How much of that was the nation of Islam telling him not to take induction? And how much was it his own moral persuasion, thinking this is wrong, I'm not doing this? I think it was mostly nation of Islam. Remember, Elijah Muhammad did the same thing in World War II. Right. And, and, and the members of the nation had convinced him that, that Muhammad, you go into the army, some cracker in the South is going to shoot you. Okay, you know, they're going to send you to Alabama or Mississippi or someplace in the South. To, to a camp training camp and they're going to kill you okay there's no doubt about it and, and and I think I think Muhammad believed that I think he believed that he would be that there was a threat 
and the nation was so strong in its anti, not so much anti-war, but just you don't do it because you're not falling into American wars. So I think they were the, the vital influence in that. I mean, otherwise, he would have been a Joe Lewis. He would have gone in. He would have had 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 he not been a member of the nation. Had he been like Floyd Patterson, he would have gone in. He would have gone to bases. He would give him exhibitions. He would give him talks. He would have done his year, and that would have been that. Wasn't that offered to him though? Wasn't he? Didn't they say you'll sit in an office and sign photos and stuff like that? Well, they said they indicated that. But remember, who, who's he believing? Is he believing some, you know, kind of white power establishment as he sees it? Or is he going to believe the nation of Islam? His, you know, the people that are traveling with him, that are living with him, that are dealing with him every day. You know, he, he, he believes he's in trouble. Not, not he's going to be sent to fight in Vietnam. He's in trouble in, in the United States. Do you think that, uh, I mean, a lot of the draft boards consisted of Southerners. But why do you think they specifically targeted Ali because of his membership in the nation? He was so vocal. No, not really. I, I think, you know, he, it was at a point where suddenly we were building up in Vietnam. So we're, we just needed to draft a lot more people. And now what did the Louisville board that, that called him up, did they do that? Was it a political by them or was it intentional? I've never seen any indication that that's a fact, but I could be wrong on that. Yeah, he's just saying, I mean, Ali himself said, why aren't they drafting Tom Seaver or Johnny Bench or whoever, baseball players or football players? Yeah. You know, why me? Yeah, it's good. good question. Good question. Right, and, and of course... I wonder if he ever regretted that after. I mean, I mean, he he was known to have said it made the comeback bigger. You know, I got more money for the fights. But with the way the Nation of Islam didn't support him, you kind of wonder how he felt in the end. Well, in a way, it, it was probably an important step, though it may have been generated by the Nation of Islam. It's one of the stance that made him very popular in America when America turns against the war, you know, and they're looking for symbols of resistance, symbols that that said, gave, spoke the truth. You know, it, it's not my war. It's, you know, what am I going to go over a black man to fight yellow man, kill yellow man? Um, it, 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 in, a, in a sense, it made him more popular, not at the moment, but a couple yeah, of years later by 68, 69, Suddenly now he's 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 a prophet for a younger generation, for an anti-war generation. And soon that that group is going to include a lot more people than than are right wing and support the war. And so that that really made him popular, regardless of why he took the stand. He did take the stand. Well, he becomes a world figure then because people don't realize how loathe he was in the early 60s and in the middle 60s for joining the Nation of Islam and then by the old guard when he stands up against the war and then when he comes back. And, and I think one of the, uh, would you agree that one of the things that helps his popularity was after he wins in the Supreme Court, he's not bitter. He doesn't show bitterness. He doesn't counter Sue. He doesn't badmouth them. Yeah. He just says they did what they were supposed to do and you can't blame him for that. Yeah. And, and remember he's, he's also, he's unpopular in the United States. 
but he was popular in a lot of places in the world. I mean, really right. popular. I mean, when he became champion, the first place he goes, he doesn't make the obligatory tour of Europe and fight some European fighters and make pull, make money. He goes to Africa. You know, he makes a tour of northern part of some of the countries in northern Africa. And, you know, that's that means a great deal for him being a world champion. Yeah, I, I, I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true or not, that he tried to see Nelson Mandela, but they wouldn't let him. So I don't know if that's apocryphal or if it's... If At that time in the early 60s, uh, my guess is no, he didn't go to South Africa. You know, he was, he was in Ankara and he was in, you know, a couple other places in the northeastern uh, Africa, but he didn't go to South Africa. So I, I've i never really read that. Uh, I'm not surprised, though, that when he met Nelson Mandela years later, Mandela said he was listening on radio to the list and fight, but also to what was happening with Ali in America and that what Ali was standing up for meant a lot to him. I, I believe that. And, and I don't know Mandela's history that well. I don't know, you know, when he went to Robben Island and when he, you know, exactly, you know, where he was at, at different times. Right. There, there's a great story where Mandela's in the United States after he's released and he's in Hollywood and he's old. So he's tired and all these, you know, Hollywood celebrities are looking at him, talking to him. But like all celebrities, they're looking over his shoulder to see if there's someone else talk to and he's sitting down he's almost asleep and then his eyes light up and he stands up and who's the and his tears in his eyes and who's walking towards him muhammad ali and yes. the people that were there said it was the greatest embrace they ever saw yeah. you know it's two champions embracing each other and it's it's a, if, if you if you say what person was better known in world in the world in the 20th century or second half of the 20th century it may be muhammad ali he was i think in the guinness, guinness book of world records i think listed him as the most known but but nelson mandela then would have been right up there with him i mean you know these are two truly iconic individuals absolutely absolutely you know george Chevalier said to me about himself he said i was famous because i fought ali not because i fought yeah you know, Ali's fans number in the billions around the world. So because I fought him, I was known by his fans. That's why people know me. See, that's Shivalo. That You know, that is an, a, a great statement. And probably the, a, a truer statement hasn't been made. And it shows the importance of Ali, that you're famous because you had a brush with a, somebody who truly was famous, who truly was a significant, who made a difference. Well, here's something I, I had learned, but I didn't know George knew this. I asked him, how did you feel about Muhammad in the 60s? And he said, well, I support him. He had a right to change his name and his religion. It's no one else's business. And then he said something to me which blew my mind, because he's a prize fighter. He said, the Vietnam War was based on the domino theory, which was obsolete. I thought, <laughs> oh, George Cavallo, how would a prize fighter know that? You're just confirming my opinion that Chavala was a smart guy. Yeah, he just said, you know, they thought every, every, I said, I know what the theory is, George, that if Vietnam falls, every, every Asian country in Southeast Asia will fall. And he said, right, but it was obsolete. So Ali was doing the right thing. Well, tell me this, Lou. I wrote a book on, uh, excuse me, on, on Vietnam, history yeah. of Vietnam. 
did Shavala learn that from my book? He did may he, have. Did he, did he I say, I, you know, I read Randy Roberts's book on that subject, and uh, and that's what I got out of it, because that's, that's more my students get out of it. I wouldn't um, doubt it, because, I mean, George is, George, I mean, now he's he's got severe dementia, but he was very well read, and he was up on on and politics, and, and he was just, the Vietnam War upset him greatly, because from his viewpoint, young people were being sent off to die, and he said the United States and the world needs these young people. Well, it's a, it's, that's a compliment for the educational system that you have up in Canada. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Thank you. I might be the exception um, <laughs> to that. But um, I've got about 1,500 more questions, but I know we've taken up a lot of your time. I can't tell you, it's the greatest thrill for me of my life, next to the birth of my daughter, to have you on. Oh, geez, thank you. Well, I, let's, do it, let's do it again and talk about Lewis and Dempsey and Johnson. I'd and love Sullivan. That, that would bring me such joy because I'm, I, as I'm sitting here, my bookcase is right next to me. And your books, I, I, was, I felt like a friend had died when I had finished reading your book. Oh, thank you very much. So I didn't want it to end. And the Dempsey book was brilliant. Papa Jack. I, I found in a bookstore here in Toronto and I walked by it three times and I thought I must be seeing slip. I, that can't be Papa Jack. And, <laughs> and I was, and, and I just, you know, my wife said, what are you doing? Grab it, buy it. <laughs> I said, I've checked the book. Who cares what the price is? You've been looking for it for how many years? Get the book. And I said, okay, okay. And I got the book. I mean, it was just wonderful. I appreciate that. Thank you kindly. And, and on, you were, I thought the, the best speaker on unforgivable blackness. I mean, your eloquence and the stuff you knew and, and spoke about Jack Johnson, who in himself is, the world can never know enough about him. Oh, but I was so much older then and younger than that now. I don't have those opinions anymore. Right. I'm not as confident of them, but no, well, I appreciate it. I really do. The thing is, I, I think with those books, and I can't wait to read the Mickey Mantle book is because you bring them back to life. You put flesh on the bone. You put the reader in that time period right beside the athlete, beside the boxer. That's and what that's I try to do. And I, and I try to, you know, boxing is a great sport to write about because it's not like a baseball game where you have these subtle shifts that nine different players are making. And, and, and it's a very complex game to describe. But boxing, you know, you're you're focused on two people, and you can watch the tapes. You can see, you know, listen. You know how they fight. You know what they're trying to do. What the other one's trying to do. And so it's a wonderful sport just to write about the fights themselves. I love doing it. It's it's great. Well, and you know, you have to build up before a fight. You have a, an end game. What do people think afterwards? I, it's 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 been a it's been a pleasure doing this during my life. Thank you. I have one last story, quick story to tell you. At the Hall of Fame in, in the early 90s, I was sitting there with Angelo Dundee, and we're at the Days Inn in the breakfast room, and Larry Holmes, all these great fighters are there. And we're all having breakfast. The TV's on and loud, but no one's listening. And then a story comes on about something about Mickey Mantle. Everyone, stop talking. You look at the room, and their jaws dropped, and they dismount Mickey Mantle. I, you yeah. know, as if God Himself had appeared. Yeah, that, that's 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 a great story. Al Kaline, 
great hitter for Detroit. Uh, who, when Mickey in 56, when he won the Triple Crown, Al Kaline almost beat him. It went down to the last day and runs batted in. But anyway, Al Kaline was doing signing autographs and, you know, autograph, baseball autograph session for money. And some younger person went to him and said, you weren't half the player Mickey Mantle was. Now K-Line looked at him and said, son, nobody was half the player Mickey Mantle was. <laughs> That's fantastic. And yeah. true. And true. Yeah, wow. The great Mick. Listen, where can, where can people get um, a Season in the Sun, Mickey Mantle? They can get oh, it on Amazon? They, certainly on Amazon.com. You know, I, I, it was actually, I've had another book out since then. Okay. Uh, but but it's you know it might be in bookstores, uh, but they can get it on Amazon.com. They can get basically all my books on Amazon.com. What is the other book you've had out since then? I, I did a book on Boston in in 1919, 1918, and I looked at three icons. It's called War Fever, and I looked at three kind of competing not competing stories but intertwined stories of three celebrities it's i look at the it's the year that babe ruth stops being a pitcher and becomes a hitter he's both a pitcher and a hitter uh at that time uh, a guy by the name of carl muck a german composer who's the head of the boston symphony orchestra who gets in trouble with a repressive government and gets thrown into a kind of a detention camp that he didn't shouldn't have been thrown into and then the other one is a guy by the name of Whittlesey, uh, uh, who was a becomes America's greatest war hero in World War One, and has a tragic ending. So it's kind of intertwined stories called War Fever. I'll pick that up. I, you know, Babe Ruth hit his first home run in Toronto. Did he for the Providence Grays? Okay, uh, when, when, he, when he hit this, they were um, uh, a minor league team. And this was, I think, 1913, 1914. And so um, I wanted to verify. So I called Cooperstown and they gave me the names of box or baseball historians in Toronto who I met with. So one guy had an interview from 1971 with the kid who was selling programs at, during the day. Because the story in Toronto was he hit the ball, it was at Hamlin's Point, this island. And the ball went into Lake Ontario. <laughs> and the kid said it didn't go into Lake Ontario because that would have been an 800-foot home run. It went into the stands. And, and, and he said, what happened next? It was thrown back onto the field. And the, the reporter said, why? And he said, because no one knew Babe Ruth then. <laughs> no one knew. He hadn't hit a home run yet. How much would that book all be worth? Today? Well, people are still looking for it. I'd try to do get money <laughs> for a show to look for it. It was rumored it's in Lake Ontario. It was on a bar in Toronto. Other places have rumored to have it. But the thing for that day was he pitched a one-hitter in the yeah. next game. And I, I can send you the thing from the newspaper report and the report from the kids. So it's a fascinating story. He was just here for that game. That yeah, was yeah. it. In 1918, it was interesting that uh, his manager did not like him being a hitter, okay? I mean, it's a nice thing, but he's a left-handed pitcher. He's the best left-handed pitcher in baseball. What do you want a guy swings for the fences? And it wasn't an era that was famous for home runs. You know, it was famous for the kind of dead ball era. 
uh, you know, and, and so Babe Ruth, he heard the fans and, and the kind of reception he got when he hit the long ball and he hit the home runs. And so it's something he didn't get as a pitcher. And so he wants to be a hitter. And his manager still says, no, we want you to be a pitcher. And Babe Ruth leaves the team during the year and kind of finally comes back. I mean, it's kind of an interesting story. And all this time, there's a war going on in Europe. And then my, my book ends. And the book came out during the COVID year because my book ends with the coming of uh, the influenza in 1918 that you know and, and its impact on america so that's kind of the fourth character in the book is the coming of influenza which is taking place all over that year wow wow i i, I have one last question for you before i let you go shoot that's all right did the 1960s make ali or did ali make the 1960s <laughs> there's no definitive answer to that one um probably there would have been the 1960s without al lee but would have had to, it would have had to you know it would have had to make its own alley it would have to found those same qualities that al lee brought in somebody else so you know in every era you have somebody who's kind of sums up the zeitgeist of the period and al lee sums up the zeitgeist the worldview of America in the 1960s, and maybe the world in the 1960s. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, Randy, I can't thank you enough. And I, as you said, I'd love to do it again and uh, to talk about your other books. And uh, it's been an absolute privilege and a tremendous pleasure to have you on. Thank you so very much. Okay, thank you very much, Lou. You do well, and we'll speak to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Okay. That was great. Eric, are you there?